If you would please turn with me one last time to the Gospel of Luke. What a joy it is and what a bittersweet thing it is to come to a conclusion of this sermon series. Um, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 50. If you're reading out of your Pew Bibles this morning, it's page 885. Uh, but we're reading Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. Let us hear God's holy word. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. May God bless this, the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this hour of worship. Thank you that we are able to come to you and unburden our hearts of our sin in confession, unburden our hearts of the cares of this world in petition, to know that you give our daily bread to know that you guide our steps, to know that you accomplish all your holy will. Thank you for these hymns to sing. Thank you for, Lord, for the reading of your word. Lord, as we come to the preaching, we ask that you would commandeer our hearts and our minds, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would grow us, and Lord, that you would save sinners. We ask that you would draw us near to you in the beauty of your word. And to that end, Lord, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place and hide your servant behind the cross. That you would make yourself known in the preaching of the word. So that all who are here would know they have heard from the living God. We ask that you would commandeer heart, mind, voice, and tongue of your servants. So that every word that is spoken would serve your glory and not man's. That we would give all praise and honor to you and you alone. For you alone are worthy. We pray all these things in the name of your son, our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a literary device called a boxed narrative. Uh, Whenever I come across that, I always think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where you have this story, right, that begins on, on a boat that is journeying up into the Arctic, and they rescue this strange man, Dr. Frankenstein, from an ice floe. And Dr. Frankenstein tells his story to the captain, the strange narrative of all these things that have taken place about the creature and the sorrows and the shifts and the changes. And then the story actually ends on the same boat when Dr. Frankenstein passes and the creature emerges. Luke's gospel is a kind of boxed narrative. When we begin Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, God the Son is enthroned in heaven. 
when we reach the very end of Luke chapter 24, God the Son is enthroned in heaven. But everything changes in between. What happens between Luke chapter 1 and Luke 24 changed the entire nature of human existence because it secured a way for sinners to be saved. So as we come to Luke's conclusion, we want to deal with the text in the course of four points. The first, indeed, is blessing. The second is ascension. The third is worship. And the fourth is conclusion. And that outline is included for you in your bulletin, as well as the verse list that we'll be progressing through. But we're starting out with blessing. As we come to the last verses of Luke, there are interesting and important connections to the beginning of Luke, but also to the beginning of Acts chapter 1. We started with Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty regarding the things you have been taught. In fact, Philem Graham Ryken, based on that last line, calls Luke the gospel of knowing for sure. There have been stories, right, that have erupted out of Jerusalem and out into the Roman Empire about a man who has come back from the dead. Who is he? Where did he come from? Why? Has he come back from the dead? Is this true? And Luke has been true to his word. He has given Theophilus and us an orderly and extensive account of Christ from the angelic announcement that John the Baptist would be born all the way through the cross and now to the ascension of Christ. Luke is an inspired historiography. We use that word inspired in a lot of very vague senses in our modern world. But when we use it in this context, it's the proper and true meaning. Meaning that it is breathed out by God. That it is indeed moved by the Holy Spirit. It is gathered, right? Luke's gospel is gathered from eyewitnesses. Luke went and talked to Mary Magdalene. Luke went and talked to the widow whose son was raised from the dead, he went and investigated these things and spoke to people who saw Jesus and compiled all of that eyewitness evidence under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to confirm that the stories that were told about Jesus Christ were true. That it wasn't one man's story. But it was validated and vindicated by multiple people from different places. Luke has given us more of Christ's parables than the other Gospels. Luke has explored and elaborated the roles of the women who followed after Christ. And Luke's words here at the end are incredibly brief. So much so that many think that Luke was running out of scroll to write on. And he abbreviated the ending. Because he knew that when he was going to write Acts, 
he'd be able to pick up the details, right? And there's an overlap between the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And we know from Acts that these events that Luke describes, in beginning in verse 50, are taking place some 40 days after the events of the resurrection. Those 40 days were filled up with instruction of Christ to his disciples, some of which took place all the way up in Galilee. But now, at the end of Christ's time on earth, he draws his disciples out. He takes them out as far as Bethany. Now, just for clarity's sake, when Luke tells us here, as far as Bethany, and then when he talks in Acts of, Mount of the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, he's not contradicting himself. Bethany is actually located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So it would be like us saying Prescott or Thumb Butte. It's all there together. Jesus lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now this ties us into a lot of different Old Testament texts about the nature of benediction, of blessing prayed upon God's people. But let's just look at one in particular. In Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 to 23... It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Right? So you have this sin offering, which is a foreshadowing and a type of Christ. Of Christ's crucifixion for our sins. That's reflected in this sin offering, right? And then Aaron blesses the people. And then he goes into the presence of God. And then he comes out and he blesses God's people. As J.C. Ryle and others have pointed out, what we're seeing in our texts is a great Melchizedekian priesthood blessing that is set in parallel with Luke's opening. Right? If you go back to Luke chapter 1, there you have Zechariah the priest. And he goes in to offer incense in the temple. Zechariah was supposed to come out from that temple and pronounce blessing upon the people. But he was rendered mute. He was unable to come and give this blessing because he did not trust in the promise of God. That he was going to have a child. He was mute until the time of his son John's birth. And so now we finally get our blessing. Now the blessing is finally pronounced, but it is pronounced by a far better priest. And as Joel Green points out, it isn't a blessing at the temple in Jerusalem. This ties us into another principle. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well... That they would no longer worship God in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim. Then in John chapter 4 verses 23 to 24, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we worship God in spirit and in truth throughout the world. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to hear God, and we don't have to go to Jerusalem for God to hear us. And it's being presented here, right? That the blessing is being presented to the, Israel, to, to the church in its 
nucleus, so to speak. The blessing is being pronounced to them. They didn't have to be in Jerusalem because we don't have to be in Jerusalem to hear God's blessing. It is going out and out and out to the ends of the earth. And Riken points out Jesus had become their benediction. For when he blessed his disciples, he blessed them with lifted hands that still bore the prints of the nails that crucified him. And which therefore proclaimed his undying love for sinners. And it was while Jesus blessed them that he ascended into heaven. As J.C. Ryle said, he left them when in the very act of blessing. It was intended to remind the disciples of all that Jesus had brought with him when he came into the world. It was intended to assure them of what he would yet do after he left the world. He came on earth to bless and not to curse, and blessing he departed. He came in love and not in anger, and in love he went away. He came not as a condemning judge, but as a compassionate friend, and as a friend he returned to his father. He had been a savior full of blessings to his little flock while he had been with them. He would be a savior full of blessings to them. He would have them know even after he was taken away. And so Christ rose up, literally gaining altitude, into the clouds and out of sight. He didn't simply vanish as he had done so many times before. Right? We see him just simply disappear from the disciples that are there with him on the road to Emmaus, right? They go in, they break bread, they realize it's Jesus, and Jesus is gone. And then they're all gathered together, talking about what just happened, and suddenly Jesus is in the midst of them. But this time, Jesus doesn't just vanish, but he rather visibly ascends until he is out of their sight. Now, Obviously, Jesus isn't going into the clouds because heaven is in the clouds, despite what childhood cartoons may have taught you. We cannot measure the distance to heaven in miles. You cannot see it if you get a powerful enough telescope. This was for the disciples' sake. Jesus was showing them, I'm leaving you now. I'm going to heaven. It was a way for them to see the heavens of God's throne, which they thought was just beyond the clouds. It was to show them that he was going to heaven to take his place enthroned at the right hand of God. And Jesus is bodily alive and present in heaven. As Clement of Alexandria put it, he was carried up into heaven so that he might share the Father's throne even with the flesh that was united to him. This is the flesh that he shares with us. It is perfected and it is glorified, but it is human flesh because he is our sympathetic mediator. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus had proven the reality of the resurrection to come. He was the first fruits of that resurrection, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. 
And now he proved the reconciliation of human flesh to God. When Christ returns, earth and heaven will meet. And in our flesh, we will be with our God. And Jesus went to heaven. And from that place, as our sympathetic mediator, he intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And finally, in Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered into, not, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. By providing a visible ascension, Jesus made clear to them that he was taking a relatively permanent residence there, but also to show them from whence he would return. Jesus even left angelic clarification of all this. As we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And from that place, Jesus will return as our blessing and as blessing us. This is what we wait for. This is what we yearn for. This is what we pray for. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 to 21. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the roots and the descendants of David's. The bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. As J.C. Ryle said, he will not always abide within the Holy of Holies. He will come forth like the Jewish high priest to bless the people, to gather his saints together, and to restore all things. But as we saw in the Sunday school with 2 Thessalonians, right? It is only a joy and a peace and a comfort to those who are atoned for in the blood of Christ, to those who have their rest in Christ, 
And to the rest of the world, it is a terror. It is a thief in the night. Throughout Christ's ministry, he taught his disciples. Before the cross, he spoke to them of his departure and death and the sorrow that it would be for them. Right? John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now Christ is risen from the dead. He taught them further and in greater light, in greater clarity, who he was and what he had done. And now he ascends. And after he's ascended, leaving his disciples, they are again alone. But they are no longer uninformed. They knew where Jesus had gone. And they knew why. So how do they respond? Well, they don't weep as they did when Christ was taken from them in crucifixion. Luke tells us they worshipped him. They praised him there at that mountain. And right out the gate, this tells us first that they understood Jesus' deity. Angels reject worship because they are unworthy. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, after John has fallen down to worship the angel, right? When he falls down, he says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But they fell down and they worshipped Christ because Christ as God is worthy. And they worshipped him because he was able to hear and receive their praises. We have no reason to think that saints or our ancestors or our friends in glory can hear us when we pray. Scripture gives us no such indication. But the omniscient God hears our praises. Matthew Henry writes, this fresh display of Christ's glory drew from them fresh acknowledgments and adorations of it. They knew that though he was parted from them, yet he could and did take notice of their adorations of him. The cloud that received him out of their sight did not put them or their services out of his sight. Jesus still saw. They worshipped him. They worshipped for joy, knowing that, they, that he had redeemed them, that he had interceded for them, that he would meet for them, meet them again, either on earth or in heaven. And today, we gather together and respond to the life, the death, and the ascension of Christ in worship. Worship is a response to God's goodness. It's a response to his grace. That's why we sing. Again from J.C. Ryle, let it to a settled principle with us that the little degree of joy which many believers feel arises often from a want of knowledge. Right? I know this is older English, so it sounds strange to our modern ears. But he's saying the reason people have so little joy as Christians it's because they have so little knowledge. Weak faith and inconsistent practice are doubtless two great reasons why many of God's children enjoy so little peace. But it may well be suspected that dim and indistinct views of the gospel 
are the true cause of many a believer's discomforts. There's a proportionate relationship, right? A direct proportionate relationship between our knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, and our love of God. There are some people in this world that the more you know them, the less you love them. But with God, the more we know of him, the more we have reason to praise him, to serve him, and to worship him. The disciples then returned to Jerusalem to wait for the fulfillments of God's promise that we looked at last week, right? This promise that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be guided by this great promise of the Father, this blessing. They went to the temple and they continually, bless, they continually blessed God. Evans writes, Luke's gospel thus ends where it began, in the temple with joy. Joel Green also ties this to the commendable behavior of Anna in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting in the redemption of Jerusalem. Right? And she is there when Christ is brought to the temple to be dedicated. So, as we close out Luke with a heavy heart, what should we take away with us? Certainly, I can't begin to give you all the applications that we've covered in two and a half years on this sermon series, but there are certainly some high points that we should revisit. First, understand the historicity of this book. Luke went to Galilee and Jerusalem and talked to people who saw Jesus, who heard his sermons, who saw his death, and who saw him risen again from the dead. If you're not a Christian, I beg of you to wrestle with that, that this is historical documentation of a man who died. And as Michael Horton says, if there was anything the Romans were good at, it was killing people. They made sure he was dead. They put him in the grave, and three days later, he walked out. And he was seen by many, many people. It was a well-testified, well-documented historical event where someone died, stayed dead, and then came back from the dead. We're not talking about CPR where the heart stops for a moment. We're talking about three days. This isn't the Quran or the Book of Mormon where one guy comes out of the wilderness and makes claims about a divine or angelic experience. We're talking about Matthew and Mark and John who wrote their own eyewitness accounts and Luke is a compilation from all of the other eyewitnesses. People heard Jesus claim he was the son of God and that he would come back from the dead. They saw him die and then they saw him come back from the dead. Wrestle with that. Contend with that. Second, see the commands which Christ gave to the world. 
Love and serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love and serve your fellow man, even your enemies. Look at the depth and the breadth of those commands. And see how far you have fallen short. And understand that in order for you to stand on your own two feet before God and say, I've earned my place in heaven, you have to have done those two things perfectly from birth till death. Look at those commands. See your brokenness. See how far you have fallen short. Confess your brokenness to God, your sinfulness to God, and run to Jesus for forgiveness, but also for his righteousness to clothe you. Plead for the grace to do better and set your feet on the path of following after him. Third, See the compassion of Jesus. Time and again through this gospel, we have seen how Jesus loved broken people. He took the sick, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the, de the demon-possessed, and he healed them. He took tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners of all kinds, and he forgave them. Take notice of how there's two stages of this. Jesus never turned away anyone who came to him, no matter how diseased or filthy or broken or sinful or terrible. The only people that we might say that Jesus rejected were the ones who came to him, who weren't actually coming to him. They physically approached him, but they weren't coming to him. Jesus had no soft words for self-righteous men who thought they did not need a savior. But also notice that Jesus never left broken, sinful people the way he found them. There are many so-called churches today that say Jesus accepted everyone. And that's not actually true. Because Jesus didn't accept anyone. Jesus changed people. And there's a difference. Jesus didn't reject anyone, but he didn't leave anyone the way that he found them. Jesus loved sinners, and he saved them from their sins because he loved them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That means that we are called to reflect Christ by loving unlovable people and pointing them to Jesus who saves sinners. But next, see how that compassion of Jesus for sinners did not end just because he ascended into heaven. While Jesus was on earth, he took time for all of those people. He welcomed the children. He welcomed the lepers. He welcomed all to come to him. And if you are a Christian, that means Jesus loves you. And it means Jesus loved you before the world began. It loved you when he was just the son of God outside of time in eternity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And his love has always been perfect for you. Jesus loves you. He took your sins to the cross and he loved you perfectly then. 
And he is your sympathetic mediator in heaven. And you can always go to Christ in prayer. I do my best to be here for God's people and to to be available. And I talk about in the ministry, it's a 24-7 on-call job. There are catastrophes that take place and I've gotten three o'clock in the morning phone calls. But there's limitations to me. There is no limitation to Christ. Christ never sleeps through his cell phone ringing. Christ never loses consciousness because he's been out up for too long. You can always go to Christ because there is no suffering that he does not understand. There is no temptation he does not understand. There is no care so small that he would disregard it. There's nothing too big or too small for him. And you can always go to Christ and recognize that the story of Jesus is not over. At the end of the book of Luke, we might as well have an ellipsis, right? The dot, dot, dot. G.C. Morgan makes an important observation. The best place to end a study of Luke is in the first chapter of Acts. The former treatise I made, O Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The story of all that he began to do and teach. In the Acts, we have the story of his continued doing and teaching. We are linked with the living Christ by the Spirit who came in fulfillment of the promise of the Father, and we are called to be witnesses of all these things. Jesus isn't done. This is simply the next phase of the gospel revelation. This is the time wherein he reigns from heaven. This is the time wherein his Holy Spirit labors in sinners and in saints and in sinners who are saints. Because there are no saints who are not sinners this side of heaven. And God continues to work and to grow and to save sinners. God is still saving sinners in the blood of Jesus Christ. God is still preserving his saints in his grace. The kingdom of God is still growing. And not one of his elects can be snatched out of his hand. Not one of them will be lost. And that offer of salvation in Jesus Christ is open to you today. If you do not know Christ savingly, if you have not trusted him in him for your whole and soul salvation, if you do not love him above all, then you love him not not at all, says Augustine, then his offer stands in this moment, that if you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And then you will find peace. You will find rest in him, the likes of which the world can never offer you. In Christ is eternal life. But know that this offer of salvation doesn't actually stand forever. Jesus' return is drawing nearer every day. It may be today. 
I always hope Jesus is going to come back on a Sunday. It just seems fitting. And we know that it's one day near. Every day that passes. And you are also not guaranteed tomorrow in your own life. Even if Jesus' return is still some distance off, your day of death may not be. This may be the last sermon you ever hear before you come before God in judgment. Do not hesitate, but run to Christ in repentance and faith before the end. So let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for all that you are. In your mercy, in your grace, in your love, Lord, we thank you for Luke's gospel. We thank you for this record of our Savior's atoning sacrifice. We thank you that he has pronounced his blessing upon the church. That he continues to intercede for his church. We thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and to guide our minds. To preserve us as your people and to save sinners. Lord, you have drawn us out of death and into life by this grace that we have seen purchased in Luke's gospel. And Lord, we, we praise you. We ask that you would help us to remember the beautiful things that we have examined in this series. That these truths of your word would resound in our hearts. And Lord, we ask that if there are any here that do not know you, that you would draw them to you. That you would grant them repentance and faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.